Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Feel to be joined right now by Mike Rosenbaum. Mike is a prospect writer for MLB.com. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Golden Sombrero. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Good to be here. Well, I ask everyone this at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. My childhood, specifically my father, he was a big White Sox fan grow, uh, growing up. I grew up in the Chicagoland area. Probably should have been a Cubs fan, but uh, that's, that's kind of how it was. Um, and that eventually turned into a baseball career of my own. Uh, granted, it was, it was Division three, but a baseball career nonetheless. And then once I graduated, it was kind of looking for an outlet for my baseball knowledge and all the baseball conversations I wanted to have. And that turned into a, a website with some of my college friends. And that kind of evolved into a focus on prospects specifically. Um, given my age, I was right out of college. And, and honestly, kind of rookies always, uh, rookies always interested me, whether it was rookie cards or players back when I was a kid. So that kind of fueled my love of prospects and minor leaguers. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of just morphed into an interest in player development and, and how teams build farm systems and, uh, you know, trying to identify the qualities in young players that portend a successful career in the major leagues. I got to tell you, I just put together a 88 Fleer set. Quite a few prospects didn't make it from that set. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, the, the mass produced card era. Yeah, that, I mean, those are the cards of my youth we thought would be rich off them. It turns out they're worth nothing, nothing. It, it's, it's very disappointing to uh, you know, open a, a Beckett or look on eBay and, and realize that the cards that you coveted and valued as, as a kid are, you know, pennies on the dollar these days. My youth can be purchased for $6. Yeah, yeah, basically. Well, before we get into some of the players on the MLB.com Top 100 list itself, tell me a bit how the list is compiled. Yeah, sure. So it's myself, Jim Callis, and Jonathan Mayo, and, and the process begins with we each submit a list of our, our own personal top 125 prospects. We argue over that for a little bit and um, do eventually do two more drafts of that before submitting it to team executives, GMs, uh, just, just um, upper level people w- within offices, whether it's from the player development or actual GM, assistant GM, people, people who have a really good sense of the minor league landscape. And, and we'll use that feedback and, and use it to further fine-tune our list and by the end of that process um you know after a lot of deliberation we we land on our official top 100 well let's go right to the top of the list let's talk about shohei otani obviously the prospect with the most hype tough to know if he's really a prospect at all he pitched professionally in japan obviously what can the angels realistically expect from him this year well obviously there's a little bit of an issue with his elbow it probably won't be a major concern but uh that that can't help but be a little bit worried about how that impacts his ability on the mound because that's that's really what the Angels are paying him for to be the frontline starting pitcher that he was in Japan. Anything he adds offensively is just going to be a bonus, and it's kind of yet to be seen how many at bats he really gets. It's unlikely he'll play in the outfield just to protect him and keep him healthy. So, you know, he'll be fighting at bats for for uh, at DH for the Angels and. What I really like about him, and I think people don't mention enough, is that he's very athletic. Uh, And I like pitchers, players like that, especially that age, who have the athleticism necessary to be a successful pitcher, to, to, uh, you know, potentially go two ways such as that. I'm going to bet on him having far more success on the mound just because the stuff is really impressive. It's, you know, it's an upper nineties fastball. It's a wipeout slider, good curveball, good splitter, good changeup. It, it just really goes down the line. Like he, he's got five, 
average or better, most of them well above average pitches, um, good feel for pitching to it. So the matter is, is he going to stay healthy? How much the Angels are going to push him? But, uh, I mean, I expect him to be uh, make an immediate impact in 2018 and, and offer some value at the plate as well. Raises a very interesting question for fantasy owners, but that's a subject for another day. Let's take away the aspect of the two-way player for a minute and just focus on his pitching. If he wasn't hitting, would he still be number one on the list? Probably not. He would still likely be in the top five or top seven uh, because he is. we would have him ranked as the, as the top pitching prospect regardless. So if you look down the list, you got Forrest Whitley. He's the, he's the next uh, legitimate pitcher. He's ranked number nine. So you can safely say he'd still be in the top ten. The fact that he can also hit and he runs very well um, is, is just bonus. And we've really never seen a prospect like this. So we thought, what's the harm in ranking a guy with this much hype, this much upside, uh, a track record of success against good competition? What's the harm in ranking him number one, even when you've got guys like Ronald Acuna and Vladimir Guerrero right behind him? He features five-plus pitches. What's his best pitch? The fastball. It's a, it's a pitch that's eclipsed 100 miles per hour before. Um, he, he, he pitches to both sides of the plate pretty well using it too. And I think that speaks to the athleticism and the ability to repeat his delivery, which, which really shouldn't be taken for granted. The slider is a wipeout pitch. And that's, uh, that's between that and his fastball, it's the big swing and miss pitch, swing and miss pitch. And, you know, um, like a lot of Japanese pitchers, of course, he's got a, a very nasty splitter, something that just dives right off the table. I would say it's those three pitches are, are his go-to, but, uh, you know, he's, he's known to mix in a curveball. He's known to mix in a changeup. He's going to throw strikes. So, all eyes will be on him for sure. Last year, the Rays drafted Brendan McKay out of college, a two-way player there. Do you think Otani coming over will influence or affect his development at all? I think that's a great question. I, I saw you written on the outline, and my first thought was, like, I, I've never really considered it that way. But Otani is definitely going to be a, uh, you know, a, a litmus test for the Rays and any other teams who consider this. If he's successful going both ways, and more so if he can stay healthy, and I think that's going to encourage the Rays to continue to push McKay in, in the double role, uh, you know, first baseman, DH, and then pitching sometimes. I've even read so much as that he may close some games just to keep him on the mound. Um, but whereas Otani's, you know, pitching first, then, then position player second, the Rays are intent on making McKay a hitter first and a pitcher second. Um, but, you know, even if the hitting doesn't work out, that's a very nice fallback plan. So it makes sense for them to, to continue running him out there on the mound where possible and, and kind of just gauging how best to handle his development using uh, Otani as an example. Let's move off of Otani and on to Okunia. I'm fascinated by him, prospect with the Braves, because he really shot up through the system last year. He went from being kind of just a guy to being the elite prospect in baseball. What did he do to his game that made him so elite so fast last year? I was in Braves camp last spring in their spring training camp and talking to some of the player development people. And this was after a, his truncated first, uh, what was supposed to be his full season debut, which was ultimately marred by, uh, by injury. And the Braves player development crew was just like, watch out for this guy. This guy is going to be unreal. It wasn't a surprise to them to see, to, to see him do what he did. And I think that's a combination of a staying healthy, getting a little bit stronger um, and, and just having a better feel for the game. But, you know, at the base of all that, it's just his tools are unreal. They're, they're, they're stupid, really. <laughs> um, hits for power, hits for average, runs really well, has a good arm. Uh, I mean, his, his, his weakness is probably his defense, and he's still a plus defender. So that kind of speaks to the, the amount of value he's going to add in all facets of the game. A true five-tool player? 
five tool player. Yeah. The, uh, the definition of a five tool player and especially one, you know, in this, in this day and age, one who's, primary tools are his power speed combo. You know, that, that's, uh, that's, that's what teams cover. That's what teams shell out big money for and guys get paid for. Is he going to stay in center field? Um, I think he's probably better suited for a corner just because the jumps aren't great. It, a little bit what I was alluding to, but he's definitely fast enough and athletic enough to uh, play center field. It's just a matter of whether they, the Braves, whether they sign, they trade for, or, or, um, develop somebody who's better equipped to play center. And they actually have a guy in their system, Christian Pache, who's uh, a superior defender than, than Acuna in center, but also farther away um, with, with the type of tools, not the power, but the type of tools that where he can move really quickly, a high floor guy who can hit for average, run really well, play outstanding defense. So I, I think it's leave him in center until a better option arises, but I, I don't think they'd be setting themselves back with running him out there in center field. Let's move on to number three on the list, Vlad Guerrero Jr., the first player ever to get an 80 hit grade from MLB.com. What makes his bat so special? Oh, man, where to start? Um, it, it's, a, it's a very similar swing to Vlad Sr., to his mother. It's incredibly impactful. He, he gets the barrel of the ball seemingly on every swing. He already has can hit for power to all fields at age 18. And, and the thing that's, that's crazy about Vlad Jr., at least compared to his father, is this is a guy who not only hits for average in power at, 18, at age 18 against advanced pitching in good leagues, but he walks more than he strikes out. Um, that's, that's a really special quality when combined with the pure hitting ability. And for that reason, we were completely comfortable giving him an 80 hit tool because that's, that, that, that's exactly what you throw an 80 on. Normally it's a, you know, a fastball or a really impressive run time, but to, to put an 80 on a bat, you have to have a lot of confidence, and I don't think there's any reason to doubt that he's going to be a, uh, a special hitter for a long time. No chance he stays at third base, right? Probably not. Um, he has made strides there. I know his, his, he's improved a lot, but he's a bigger guy. He's already thick. You know, he looks like he's about 22, 23 in terms of just his core and his hip size and everything. So uh, it, it, the bat is his calling card. The bat is the tool that's going to make him an impactful big leaguer. And, in the defensive position really doesn't matter. He's a guy who can handle a move down the defensive spectrum. Even if, you know, even if he ends up as a DH, he's going to be a phenomenal hitter. Another big bat up next, Eloy Jimenez for the White Sox. Big power, another big time bat, also rose quickly through the system last year. Tell me about him and what makes his power so special. It's tower power. It's, it's electric bat speed. Um, you know, a guy who produces exit velos that when he gets to the big leagues, they're going to rank among the best in the majors, you know. 115 plus consistently. I've, I think of the fall league two years ago, I saw him hit a ground ball. It was about 119 and a half miles per hour, you know? So it's just incredible bat speed, incredible power, um, and, and better feel to hit than given credit for it too. I think he's going to surprise a lot of people in his ability to make adjustments and hit for average. But whereas, whereas Vlad's calling cards, just the pure hitting ability, Jimenez is the enormous right-handed power, you know, the kind that's going to be a premium in the major leagues. I like seeing the top of the list. I like seeing all these big impact bats up there. I feel like it's been a while. Yeah, Inter international international bats too, you know, even if you extend farther too. Yeah, and I think that's exciting to have these big bats up top. Mm -hmm. Previously, it's just been up the middle guys the last few years. There's been a lot of focus on shortstop and second base, and that's that next group that we're going to get into now. But I think it's exciting to see impact bats coming in the future. Uh, yeah, we, we felt the same way, that it was uh, fine going all out on these guys, guys who have, you know, list, Jimenez has the best power, Guerrero's the best hitter, Acuna's got the best tools. It was pretty obvious. I, I don't think in any of our iterations of the list we had anything other than 
um, Otani, Acuna, Guerrero, Jimenez, uh, Torres, um, you know, spoiler number six, Victor Robles, that those were the top six in every iteration of our list. Next up is Gliber Torres, who's a guy for the Yankees that might actually get a chance to start coming right out of spring training. Do you think he can make an impact right away in 2018? People forget how good this guy is just because he missed most of last season with uh, Tommy John surgery on his non-throwing elbow stemming from, I believe it was an awkward slide in a home plate collision. Uh, he's, he's a phenomenal player. He can do everything. He's, he, can really hit. I really wouldn't be surprised if he makes the Yankees opening day roster despite missing most of last season because of that type of impact potential and especially with the, the defensive versatility. You can, you know, he, he's an infielder, but you could probably put him anywhere. He's a great athlete and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's funny that he missed so much of last year and he's still just turned 21 in, in, in December, you know, so he's definitely got time on his side even after that lost year and, um, you know, I, I, I could see him hitting towards the top of the, you know, the, the, like maybe number two in the Yankees lineup for most of the year, to, provided that there's a position, and it seems like there's going to be. Victor Robles comes in at number six. He's actually a guy that uh, moved quickly through the Washington National System. Outfielder came up briefly last year. Um, unclear if they're going to send him back to AAA to start the year. They do have Eden and Harper and Michael Taylor in the real outfield right now. What can Nationals fans expect from him in the short term and then in the long term as well? If he does have to go back to AAA to begin the year, uh, Nats fans have to be pretty happy. That's a pretty good uh, replacement lying in wait for, for you know, in, in the event of an injury or something like that. Much like Michael Taylor was as a, a fill-in last year and stepping up. That said, you know, if, if the Nationals are in a spot to compete, you, they could trade a Michael Taylor and just let Robles go. They could trade a Robles. He's a uh, man. He's fun to watch. He's he's electric. Hits the ball. Um, good field to hit. Doesn't offer much power, but absolutely flies, knows how to use his speed, knows how to get on base. Another really impressive defender in, uh, in center field who can uh, run down just about anything. A guy who, much like um, Christian Pache, who I mentioned before, when we pulled executives for an article earlier in the, in the offseason, they said that Robles and Pache were you know, probably the two best defensive outfielders in the minor leagues. And what I really like about Robles and people really haven't gotten a chance to see is he has an absolute cannon for an arm, like a legit right fielder arm, better than a legit right fielder arm from center field. So uh, he's, he's going to another guy like Acuna. He's going to add value in various facets of the game, and it makes, gives him a really high floor. Yeah, and there were reports that the Marlins actually asked for him in a return for Yelich, and the Nationals said no which speaks volumes on how much they see and regard him, uh, considering Yelich has five years of affordable club control left. And I believe they asked the Braves for the same type, for Acuna and the same type. They wanted a, uh, you know, a number one prospect of, of that type in return. And that's tough, because basically with the service time manipulation, they get these guys for seven years. Are they going to outwar Yelich for seven years of their seven years over Yelich's five? I don't know the answer to that. I, I think that with a guy like Yelich, who is a realistically a five-win player, I think you give up your top prospect to get him. And I think the Brewers did the right thing, even though Brinson is not on that level. I think that I love that deal that Milwaukee made to get Yelich. Yeah, as do I. And um, I also love the deal from Miami's perspective too. They had made some, they had added some nice pieces in previous trades, specifically the uh, Marcelo Zuno one with the Cardinals. They got, they got some nice, not high end blue chip prospects, but guys who are going to fill roles in the major leagues for years to come. Um, and then the Stanton trade, you know, they got, they got a great arm in Jorge Guzman, an interesting infielder, but, but the Yelich trade was 
the trade where it kind of overhauls the system that gives the Marlins system a much different look where you get a guy like Brinson, a guy like Harrison, two incredibly toolsy guys with, you know, 2020 potential in the major leagues, as well as a a good young pitcher and, and, you know, Robinson Cano type infielder in, in uh, Isan Diaz. So I think that was a very impactful trade. And, and, um, you know, what a big night for the Brewers that was Yelich and and Low Kane and and about, about what, 30 minutes. (laughs) Big night for the offseason. I feel like it's the only night something happened. Princeton's a Miami kid. Is he going to start in that outfield? Is he ready for that? He's probably not ready for it, but I could see it happening because uh, I think I read it yesterday or today that currently the Marlins have only three outfielders on their 40-man roster, and Princeton is one of them. So uh, you do the math. It's, it's going to be a lot of guys fighting for playing time, but it's also you know, it's going to be a very good uh, – evaluation process and and learning year for a lot of these young Marlins players. Going back to the top 10, just quickly, will we get through the top 10 here? Nick Senzel, drafted number two overall a couple years ago by the Reds, third baseman. He's getting Roland comps, which I think is unfair. Roland retired as one of the top 10 third basemen ever. The likelihood that he's going to be that guy are slim to none, but what can he be realistically? Nick Senzel can just flat out hit. He's, um, you know, there's a reason that he's number seven here. He got up to double A last year. I can't speak as much to his defense in terms of Roland, but uh, the offensive profiles are are pretty similar. It's not a very lofty swing like Scott Rollins um, in the same way that Scott Rollins wasn't. Rather, it's it's a lot of doubles. It's a lot of hard contact. It's it's good use of the entire field. Um, but you know, you talk to scouts, and, and with all those doubles, with all that ability to get the barrel to the ball. A lot of people think the power is going to come as he faces better pitching. You know, once he gets to the major league, power just clicks for some guys. It's, it's hard to explain that the, uh, the adjustment process and learning how to hit big league pitching just kind of yields more power. Fernando Tatis Jr. comes in at number eight. Padres prospect that they stole from the White Sox and the James Stole Shields. is right. Oh, man, <laughs> that's one that the White Sox have to be kicking themselves over. Now, Tatis is a guy, shortstop, not a guy that has that one tool that sticks out, but he's like consistently above average about on everything. Is that what you see him as as a major leaguer as well? Yeah, uh, the bat is a calling card for him for sure. It's it's ability to hit for average and another son of a successful, another successful former big leaguer too. You know that, that's definitely a theme on this list here. It's really impressive hitting ability and power. And when I talk to scouts about him, what they really like is this is a kid who at 18 last year in full season ball showed the ability to make adjustments month per month, almost as his statistics indicate. And because of that, it's a guy who could make you know, make a jump pretty quickly. If he begins the year back in double A and has success, you know, it's hard to see the Padres really holding him back without an obvious, uh, you know, long-term fitted shortstop for them, for them right now. And I, I, I think he may end up moving to third base just because he's a bigger guy and has a lot of room to grow into his frame, but uh, it's premium athleticism. It's, it's powered off fields. It's hitting ability. And, and I think he's going to be a phenomenal big leaguer. Number nine in the Astro system, first pitcher, I guess, uh, Otani, the first American-born traditional prospect, I guess we could right, say Otani <laughs> has already been a, a, a pro in Japan. So, but uh, Forrest Whitley, this is good scouting by the Astros. They got him right out of high school. They got him in the mid-round of the first round. They got him at pick 17, I believe. Good pitcher coming up through fast through the system. I feel like he's advancing very fast for a kid that came out of high school. Yeah, it's, you nailed it right there. I, I can't remember the last time that we saw a high school pitcher reach double A in his first full season, but that's, that's what Whit- Whitley did last year and did so with the plume. Like he, he, he dominated all the way up the ladder and um, his stuff ticked up too. He, he was kind of a, uh, 
a thicker guy, a bigger guy coming out of high school. I think he was listed somewhere in like the 240 pound range, but I caught a look at him and talked to him last spring. And my first question was like, dude, you are not as big as, as you are listed here. And he's like, yeah, I've, I've lost, you know, 50, 60 pounds before turning pro. And um, it, it showed in his athleticism on the mound, his ability to re- repeat the delivery. The fastball ticked up a little bit. I, I think he was up to consistently 94 to 97 at lots of points of the year. And, you know, every scout you talk to, like, he's got an absolute hammer of a curveball. And he's been, he, he used that um, as well as, you know, above average changeup, above average slider to dominate older history. Uh, excuse me, dominate older hitters across three leagues last year. And uh, I'm just really curious to see how he's handled this year, what what kind of limitations there are, especially with a really good Astro starting rotation. Um, You know, don't be surprised if his name is thrown around as trade bait. I think it was this past offseason as well. But with the deep rotation, and especially if they keep adding more arms, this guy is, you know, very, very intriguing uh, trade bait, if not a potential big leaguer at age 20. And I could also see them, you know, if he becomes ready this year, they need another bullpen arm. He could be the replacement for Keuchel next year. They could let Keuchel walk to free agency. That's the luxury that good teams have. You can let your aging superstars go to free agency, and if you have a young star rookie prospect to take their spot, you've just lucked out and hit the lottery, essentially. Sure, and, you know, break them in in a bullpen role like they did with uh, Francis Martez and, and David Polino last year. I, I don't think that's out of the question. It's with a competitive team where the window's open, I think anything's in play for the Astros and how they want to handle Whitley. Number 10 is Michael Kopit from the White Sox. They got him in the Chris Sale trade from the Red Sox. He throws a million miles an hour. There's some discrepancy in reports on how fast he actually throws. What is his peak and where does he sit? His peak, uh, I, I mean, personally, I've seen, him, I've seen him up to, I think, 101 in person. I know he's hit similar on, on uh, TV appearances I've seen as well. But he's consistently you know, 95 to 97, 95 to 98, um, with, with a lot of late life. It's a high spin rate fastball, too. So even if it's not you know, consistently 100 miles per hour, it's got enough life where it's, it's jumping on guys. You know, he, he's, he's throwing it through the catcher um, is the best description I can have of his fastball. With him, it's just you know getting the changeup better, throwing more strikes, uh, sp- specifically better fastball command. You know, he, he's going to learn that guys can tee up 100 in, in the major leagues. And uh, he experienced that a little bit in, in AAA. But with him, it's really just improving the uh, effectiveness, the, the, the uh, efficiency of the secondary pitches so that he can mix and match and not, not really kind of uh, attack hitters with a bullpen profile as a starter. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, obviously. I think the White Sox are doing the right thing, giving him every opportunity to start. But if he can't get his command in order, what a weapon he can be coming out of the bullpen as well. Yeah, I mean, there's no shame in that. He, he can um, be a very valuable back-end bullpen arm. Obviously, they're going to keep him in a starting role for as long as possible. You know, he's, he's only 21. I think he, he turns 22 at the beginning of the season. Um, so, they're, they're you know, I, I doubt the White Sox have even entertained the idea of putting him in the bullpen at, at this point. But, yeah, it, it doesn't take much to see why he would be effective in that role. I want to ask you about some of the organizational rankings, some of the teams near the top, are teams that have made big trades lately, that have drafted well lately. Some of the teams at the bottom are, of course, teams you would expect to see at the bottom, but two that are not normally there, or at least haven't been recently, are the Red Sox and the Cubs. Those are two big market teams, obviously. I'm curious how fast an organization can go from bottom five to top five. If they have one good draft and a good international signing period, can they make that jump in one year? How fast can a bad organization, prospect-wise, 
become good? I, I think we've seen it in recent years with the White Sox, the Astros, the Cubs, um, the Padres. Teams can basically, you know, w- within a two-year, three-year span, rebuild a farm system to an elite status. Um, and, you know, the correlation is obvious there with, with the teams I just mentioned, that those are World Series winning teams. And I don't think that's any any coincidence. It's, um, you know, being able to restock your farm system to the point where you have players who can contribute at the major league level, but also to the point where when you do make trades, when you do trade those prospects, you're trading from a, a place of depth, not necessity. And I think that's what may, has made um, those teams so successful in building the farm system while enjoying major uh, success at the major league level. That said, um, you know, for the teams who enter the season as lower ranked farm systems, it really depends on where they view themselves at, at the major league level. You know, so for example, uh, a team like the Mariners, they're going to be, we, we haven't done our rankings yet, but you know, for me, they, they'd be in my bottom five. And I don't think that's a knock on them. I think it just speaks to Jerry Depoto's approach that he's constantly trying to improve the 40 man roster, you know? So, so a weak farm system isn't near, uh, isn't always indicative of, of bad scouting practices of bad signings. A lot of it has to do with just, you know, the turnover rate in order to um, build a successful major league team, which is you know, how GMs keep their jobs, what, what puts people in the seats. Uh, and, and, you know, it takes, it takes the realization that, okay, our window is closed. Um, we need to look towards the future for teams to really start aggressively, aggressively building. And that's, that's where the Cubs were. That's where the Astros were several years ago. Um, that's where the Indians were several years ago. So I don't think that's uh I don't think it's a knock for a team to be in in the bottom rankings of a farm system. I think it's just very tied to the organizational approach. Who on the top 100 list will make the biggest impact this season in 2018? So probably guys who who have reached the big leagues or on the cusp of big leagues. Uh, Austin Hayes is a good example. He reached the majors last year after just, you know, he he was the first player from the 2006 draft class to reach the major leagues last year. And I don't think anybody would have expected it to have been him. But uh, I think he had over 320 across two levels. I think it was 32 home runs. Spent most of September in the Orioles outfield. And he should get a crack to uh, make the opening day roster. So I, I would, I'd like to see him. Uh, a couple of raised prospects, Brent Honeywell, um, right-handed pitcher, and Willie Adamas, a shortstop. They both spent all last year in AAA. Two guys who are very good, very, very solid players, um, respectively. And I think they're going to be key parts of the Rays. 2018 season and, and beyond looking at the national league, uh, less exciting names there, but I'll, I'll have to go with, Oh man, uh, probably one of, uh, a Braves prospect, Luis Gohara, um, reached the major leagues at the end of last year after I think pitching at two or three levels, he's only 21 and he's a lefty who can pump a hundred really good stuff. Um, Brazilian signee of the Mariners who the Mariners traded away for uh, roster depth kind of, fitting the, the trend I was speaking to before. Uh, but he, he should get a chance to crack the Braves rotation. If the secondaries and the control comes along, I mean, he's a guy who's going to pile up strikeouts. I could see him, uh, you know, being a more effective and consistent version of what Sean Newcomb was last year. Um, not without his growing pains, but, but I could see that. And the same goes for Max Fried, another promising Braves lefty who got up to the big leagues last year. I saw him in the fall league and he had three plus pitches, missed a lot of bats, um, both guys, it's just, it's just repeating the delivery and, and throwing strikes, being able to 
effectively mix the mix the pitches. And uh, uh, lastly, talking about Braves, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Ronald Acuna. I, I think he's going to spend most of the year in the major leagues, and it's it's hard to see him struggling. I'd be very surprised if he struggled. Acuna's fantasy value is outrageous right now, by oh, the way. Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, I see people drafting him in Dynasty Leagues right after Trout. It's like, calm down, people. Don't take him over Bryce Harper. He's not going to be that good, is he? I own him in a, uh, a Fangraphs Dynasty League, and um, the offers that I was receiving for him this offseason were not unlike the, you know, Yelich for Acuna type trades, really. <laughs> um, somebody who can contribute with power, speed, average. I mean, I mean, he's a five-category guy, depending on what format you are, a true five-category guy. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a bit about Mark Appel. Mark Appel was the number one pick in the draft. He was picked ahead of Chris Bryant, which is looks bad, obviously. But at the time, everyone thought those two guys were the top two guys in the draft class. Everyone thought it was Bryant and Appel, and there was some debate on who would go number one. And it ended up being Appel, and he might be a guy that never throws a pitch in the major leagues. I'm curious what you think the scouting community and the prospect community can learn from a guy like Mark Appel essentially busting out. He, he was a slam dunk as a draft pick, but I remember plenty of people being discussing him in terms of man I'm, I'm kind of worried about how he's going to apply his game his college game because he wasn't he wasn't lights out during his senior year at Stanford uh, and there were people who were concerned about how his pitching approach would translate to the major leagues and you know with, with good reason even for a couple of years when he was struggling the stuff wasn't really all that bad but then the injuries crept in um, and there was competent issues there he began walking a lot of guys just uh a, sh- a shell of, of his former self or a shell of what people expected him to be. And I think it all goes to show that scouting isn't, you know, a, a, a perfect science. There, people are going to miss, uh, you know, you look through history and, and there's not overwhelming examples of, of Mark Appel's, but there, there uh, are enough to confirm that this, this is going to happen. It's, it's um, you know, I'm sure the Astros are kicking themselves a little bit, but maybe they're not. They, they won a World Series. It worked out pretty well for them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I assume you read the, um, the article that it, it was interesting. It seems like a guy, he seems like a guy who's very comfortable with where he's at these days. He understands that there's more to life than baseball and he wants to have a life outside of baseball. Um, and I give, him, I give him credit for recognizing that now. He could, be going, could have been going down a very increasingly painful path, both you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, but he, uh, he recognized something in himself. So I, I admire how self-aware he is, and you know, I, I wish it could have worked out better for him. I hope he, he decides that he wants to give it another try someday, maybe as a reliever. Um, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to uh, see how scouts could be wrong in that sense, but I wouldn't even say anything that, that anybody was particularly wrong. It's just kind of um, – you know, it, it's not a perfect science. It's hard to know exactly how things will translate. There are so many variables you can't account for. And, you know, oftentimes it is kind of monkeys throwing darts at the board. You've been listening to Mike Rosenbaum. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Golden Sombrero and read his work on MLB.com. Mike, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. It's been fun.